0: Welcome to the Neither Free nor Fair podcast about election security and democracy in the 21st century. This is the What's Happening in Myanmar episode. I'm James Long, host of this podcast, an associate professor of political science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. Imagine a country that recently held an election followed by false allegations of fraud by the losing side, a coup and mass demonstrations in the streets. No, I'm not talking about the US but rather the Southeast Asian country of Myanmar where the propagation of a big lie stolen election contributed to a military takeover of the government starting in early February, and detention of the country's democratically elected government, including its Prime Minister Aung San Suu Kyi. This week, protesters have taken to the streets across Myanmar to oppose the military's actions and call for a return to democracy. To discuss the unfolding events in Myanmar and how we should understand their regional and global significance, I am joined today by Dan Slater, Dan is the Ronald and Eileen Weiser Professor of Emerging Democracies, the Director of the Weiser Center for Emerging Democracies and Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan. Dan specializes in the politics and history of enduring dictatorships and emerging democracies. His book, Ordering Power, Contentious Politics and Authoritarian Leviathans in Southeast Asia examines how divergent historical patterns of contentious politics have shaped variation in state power and authoritarian durability in Southeast Asia. In addition to numerous papers published in academic journals, Dan is also a co-editor, a co-editor of the book, Southeast Asia and Political Science, Theory, Region, and Qualitative Analysis, which assesses the contributions of Southeast Asian political studies to theoretical knowledge and comparative politics. I'm pleased to have Professor Dan Slater joining me today. Hi, Dan. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. Listeners can find this episode and previous episodes on our Anchor page, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast by searching for neither free nor fair. Please subscribe and leave a review. If our listeners have questions for us, they can always email us at uwpoliticaleconomyforum@gmail.com. at gmail.com. That's all one word lowercase, uwpoliticaleconomyforum at gmail.com. And please tell us your name and where you're from. So Dan, to help us understand what is happening now in Myanmar, how we got here and how we place the importance of these events in a regional and global context, I thought we might go in reverse chronological order. So first, what are you hearing on the ground right now from your colleagues in Myanmar and how are things going this week with the growing
1: protests? So the protests are getting bigger. Um, I think uh, the protest yesterday, which was Friday in, uh, in Myanmar, um, have been the biggest yet, and I think it's, it's important to note that they're a more diverse and eclectic um, set of protests than we've seen in the past. So the people of, of Burma or Myanmar have an incredible track record of getting out in droves whenever the military tries to take things away from them, uh, but it's often been the students or the monks, the Buddhist monks, who have been the most prominent uh, faces of these protests And this time it's really, it's the whole country, you know, uh, you're seeing protests from a lot of ethnic minority groups, uh, the civil service, there's been a lot of strike activity from within the state apparatus itself, um, which is causing a lot of, I think, headaches for the, the military. And, you know, this is you know, maybe the first time that the the youngest and the most uh, social media savvy uh, generation in Myanmar have had a chance to get into one of these protests. You know, the last time something like this happened, 2007, um, this was, you know, at this point, Myanmar was still almost like a hermit kingdom. Uh, you really had very, very little in the way of, you know, social media or anything like that. So it's, uh, and even though there's a lot of historical um, echoes, There's, it's kind of a new, uh, it's a new version and, you know, we'll see where it goes.
0: Is the military responding through repression or turning violent against the protesters? Is it too soon to tell? What's the response by the military?
1: They are responding violently. um, Mostly so far, not with deadly force. I did hear one report that a 19 year old student um, would probably be killed by the force that they, um, they suffered at one of these university protests. Um, so the the capacity and the willingness historically for the the military in, in Burma and Myanmar to to use overwhelming deadly force is like unquestioned um you might remember the, the famous 8888 protests back in 1988 2007 um, the saffron revolution um, so they're you know they've they've got a track record of using a lot of force and they haven't used a ton of force yet but, uh, but we'll have to see. Again, this is where I think the, you know, one shouldn't make too much of the role of social, social media in these things. But again, in, in 1988, 2007, they didn't have to you know, worry about people being on their, on their phones, taking, uh, taking a video of what they were doing. So I think the combination of the fact that this is gonna be much more of a televised, you know, live televised kind of, uh, kind of event. I mean, one thing they've been arresting a lot of people at night um, you know, to try to, to get around some of these problems. Um, but, but that, and I think the fact that I think there's reason to believe as we can get into that this, I think Mm -hmm. might very well be an especially unpopular coup within the military itself. That's to some degree speculation, but I think there's good reason for it. I think there's at least some hope that the military will be more restrained this time than, than in the past, but obviously no one should have any faith in that. There's just, there's reason for, you know, there's, you know, there's reason for, for optimism that it won't automatically go as badly as they have in the past Let's get to the coup uh, i think it happened i think it maybe started on
0: about february 1st there were whispers exactly. of it before it occurred and then you know coups are never like a thing that happens in a minute it can take like days it's hard to actually say okay this is the date that the coup occurred but what exactly happened and who overthrew whom
1: so this one is a pretty you can pretty time this one pretty clearly actually because february 1st was when the new parliament was supposed to convene and so basically what happened was, you know, they got to 11.59 PM in the transition period, and either the military was going to let the democratically elected parliament, you know, convene and be seated, or they weren't. And they decided no. So uh, as you mentioned at the outset, so November 8th were the parliamentary elections, the, the National League for Democracy, the NLD, which is the kind of nationalist, you know, dominant party um, led by Aung San Suu Kyi, the, kind of the nationalist icon. Um, they won in 2020 as they did in 2015 in an enormous landslide, and so there was simply no question that people want the NLD to be their government. They want them to take power. But the thing is, is that the as part of the whole reform process, which I guess we can get into in more depth. But the military controls an enormous part of the state. They control all of the security-related ministries. They control a quarter of the seats in parliament by appointment. And so they have and they built in incredibly strong safeguards for themselves, um, such that even though the NLD dominates the civilian parts of the state, they don't dominate the state entirely.
0: So talk about how the military has been a political party recently, even though they ruled under a military junta historically, because I think it's, it's, it's weird, it's kind of bizarre to think of the military
1: as being a political party competing for parliamentary seats. Right. So it's not all that unusual in, in Southeast Asia. So you can think of this in comparative perspective, I might it might be helpful. So in a country like Indonesia, so which also had essentially a, a military dominated regime for over 30 years from the mid 60s to the late 90s, they very quickly after seizing power built up a, you know, a civilian political party, which was very, very closely tied to the military called Golkar. And that political party had, you know, almost 30 years of electoral experience. Now, they weren't free and fair elections, but they actually did have, you know, essentially a political party attached to the state, attached to the military, which knew how to compete in elections. So in Myanmar, they wanted to sort of follow this model, but very, very belatedly. And so they ended up building this political party, the USDP, basically as they opened up the political process around 2010, 2011. So basically they have a much, much weaker pro-military political party than a country like Indonesia does. And this is the problem they face. The party they have is it's not really independent. People associate with the military. They associate it with 50 years of terrible military misrule. You know, it's, it's just kind of worth emphasizing. The military controlled things entirely on its own from 1962 until basically 2011. And the country was a basket case. And so people so the USDP, the military's party, is obviously struggling to to get any traction. But it was the failure in a large degree of the military to build civilian institutions, to start kind of setting up a civilian wing of its regime. That's really, really kneecapping it right now and preventing it from having, you know, strong civilian support in government, other than, you know, again, the massive safeguard of controlling the most important parts of the state all on its own.
0: So so the military party lost seats in parliament and the elections in November. And so the coup is in part in response to them literally just losing seats in the legislature.
1: So it was almost a mirror image, like a carbon copy. I mean, I think they lost four seats total. Basically the the NLD wins over 80% of the civilian seats they have both times. Um, But it wasn't as if the USDP did well in 2015 and then had some shocking setback. I mean, they got crushed in 2015 and the military accepted the result. They knew it was free and fair. The USDP got crushed again in 2020. NLD wins overwhelmingly again. Everybody knows this is what the people want. And, you know, but they just, for, you know, whatever reason, and this is, you know, where it gets interesting, for whatever reason, they, in 2015, they were able to say, look, this is a a political process we put in motion. It's a completely military-designed electoral system, completely military-designed power sharing system that they took essentially 25 years to put in place because they promised it in 1990 took them 18 years to write a constitution, 25 years to get to free and fair elections, right? But this is the military's baby. Like, this is how they did things. And 2015 was an amazing success. And the military looked a lot better afterwards. But for whatever reason, in 2020, they've decided, no, um, we're going to claim it wasn't free and fair. We're going to basically say our own process you know, didn't work this time. And at least temporarily try to go back to season a full uh, full direct military grip on not just most of the state, but the entire state. So Dan, who's
0: like actually
1: in control right now? So who's actually in control is Men Online. So he's the commander in chief of the military. Um, and so he's always been in control, again, of, you know, a good part of the state. You know, so if people, you know, if any of your listeners are interested in European politics, right? So there's this term people use, cohabitation you know, when there's like, you know, a president from one party, a prime minister from another party. So I've used that term to describe what's going on in Myanmar and has been since 2015. Essentially, the military said, we are willing to enter a cohabitation arrangement with civilians, with elected, again, very democratically elected civilians, right? And they get their part of the government and we get ours. And so the military has never left power. You know, the language that the Biden administration is using, where they say the military needs to relinquish its power, is, you know, I kind of wish they would stop saying that, even though it'd be great if they did, because the military has never relinquished their power. They have never been anywhere close to saying we're going to relinquish our power. And that's actually part of a wider pattern in Asia in which, you know, authoritarian regimes, you know, they might, you know, they, they can democratize the system, they can open up the system, they can allow free and fair elections, but they tend not to give up everything they've got in the process. And so this is not a question of the military either runs everything or runs nothing, which is the way we often think about coups. It's a question of, will the military return to the power sharing process that again, the military put in place, it didn't negotiate it. You know, it just set, this is basically unilaterally, the military put this system in place to give a certain amount of authority to elected, democratically elected civilians, right? And either the military goes back to that process or they don't. But even if they go back to the process, it would not meet, the standard of quote-unquote relinquishing power that's just not what's been going on in Myanmar.
0: Yeah so Dan that's really interesting because it seems like Southeast Asia is a little bit unique in that regard in terms of like um, you know I study Africa and there it's sort of like you know African countries get independence, there's early moments of democratization, maybe there's a military coup, And then there's kind of democratization afterwards, but this sort of cycling between democracy elections and military takeovers democracy elections military and takeovers. um, Kind of cycling and being part of the quote unquote normal political process seems very uh, specific to this region, you know i'm thinking of Thailand like the military has never really gone from political life. But, but it's not also permanent it's not also permanently in control there's always kind of this return to democratization at some at some period.
1: Yeah, well, these are the kind of comparisons I think are fascinating. So so let's play. You know, I mean, so if we think about, I think there are a lot of parallels between Myanmar and kind of the the historical rhythms of sub-Saharan Africa. So, you know, Myanmar becomes, you know, independent in, you know, in 1948, and it does initially have a period of parliamentary, you know, democracy. And the real problem that Myanmar faced, so, you know, and again, this is not gonna be, sound unfamiliar to anyone who studies Africa, but colonialism meant divide and rule. Um, It meant, you know, a military being created from an ethnic minority. Um, And then you really had the complicating factor of the Japanese invasion, Japanese occupation. And so the Myanmar is incredibly ethnically diverse. Uh, It's very territorially, um, you know, heterogeneous. So it's a very, very fragmented place and colonial... Basically, the process of British colonialism and then the Japanese um, imperial interregnum just completely put the place in, you know, in a sense of essentially chaos. And it's kind of been, you know, civil war. You know, I remember this. I was thinking the other day about this expression people used about uh, about Zaire when it was still Zaire. And someone once said it's not really a country. It's just a Zaire shaped hole in the middle of Africa. And I was thinking about that. Rotting carcass, I think. I'm trying to think of who called it rotting Carcass. It might be
0: Crawford Young. somebody yeah, no. yeah, somebody called it a rotting carcass, and that's a great <laughs> metaphor.
1: This idea, like, it's like a, you know, in a sense, Myanmar is not a country. It's a Myanmar shaped or Burma shaped, you know, hole in, you know, on mainland Southeast Asia. I mean, of course, that's an exaggeration, but the there's a way in which you, just, you shouldn't start by thinking, oh, well, this is just a country where the people are all the same. And it's just so diverse, and there's been such a history of conflict. So the, the vital thing that happened in Myanmar, in, in, in my view, is that after 1948, the country just descends into this slew of regional rebellions and separatist rebellions. And this is really the heart of why the military plays such a huge role in political life. During that decade, they basically came to the opinion, we are the only group that can hold the country together. We can't trust civilian politicians to do so. And so, you know, first in 1958, they do one of these kind of caretaker coups, temporary. Then 1962, they take over for good. But it's been the fact that they have this ongoing military mission of kind of internal pacification. I mean, basically, the British show up, you know, the as of 1885, you know, they disrupt every political institution in Myanmar. It's kind of like it reminds me of the Iraq invasion, honestly, like you go and you just wipe out the regime, you wipe out. There's just nothing there. And essentially, Myanmar is still trying to be pacified. The military is still trying to pacify the place, you know, just like the British were 100 and you know 125 plus years ago. Um, and so the military plays this, plays this huge role. But there was this moment, you know, it's not unlike a lot of uh, you know, African cases where you had initially some kind of democracy, then it goes into single party rule because whoever had the initial advantage just ends up staying in power. It's just 1962, you know, it, it could be, you know, the, the AFPFL was the old uh, ruling party. They get wiped out like, you know, someone like Nkrumah gets wiped out, right? Same kind of thing. It's just the military has had more staying power in Myanmar and the puzzle is why. And to me, the heart of it is these regional rebellions and the ways in which that has given them a a pretext for not just ruling, but ruling without civilian support. That's what makes it so unusual, is in most places where the military rules for any length of time, they've got at least some civilian support. Like, think about Egypt right now, right? So the, the reason so many people in Egypt are willing to accept military rule is because they think the military saved them from the Muslim Brotherhood, right? The reason people in Thailand, I mean, it's not a popular military regime, but it's got more popular support than the regime in Myanmar because people think, well, the the, the military, first of all, they defend the monarchy, and you know, they might love the monarchy, but also they kept this uh, you know, Thaksin the and the Thai Rak Thai, and these you know, the political parties, you know, this, that, that they set up from from winning power. So the military usually can has to have some kind of civilian alliances if it's going to rule for any length of time. Myanmar is the enormous exception to that rule.
0: And right now you're saying that there's kind of a, not a rebellion, but a, pro, or a mobilization in all parts of the country against this most recent coup. It's not just in Yangon. It's not just in one region. It's nationwide. Is that Absolutely. correct? Absolutely. So Dan, one thing that people always talk about when they talk about South Asia is they, you know, they never sort of put a country's politics in isolation of the region and, you know, even broader sort of geopolitics writ large. So I'm curious what the role of China is. If China is supporting either the, the uh, NLD, the democratically elected government or the military, and then also sort of where the Biden administration is. far. I know they've only been in office for a few weeks, and this is a, I guess right. this is sort of the first big international crisis that they've dealt with. But yeah. if you could talk about kind of the global or regional politics of it.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. No, it's a big part of the picture for sure. So basically, the they started these political reforms, these kind of preemptive political reforms. The military did in in twenty eleven, and a big part of the story was geopolitical. Basically, because Myanmar had been so you know such a kind of a rogue state, isolated um, under sanctions not not as extreme as a North Korea kind of case, but you could kind of think of, you know, it's not a bad starting point. Like, oh, okay, think of Myanmar a little bit like North Korea, right? And so basically by default, China had really become economically dominant. And again, you as an African scholar will get this, Myanmar was very, very into the non-aligned movement, right? Myanmar, you know, when they were Burma, very, very into their independence. They do not wanna to be too dependent on any single outside power. And that's true across Southeast Asia, but in, in Burma, in Myanmar, it's like, it's really, it's national ideology. And so a big reason they started doing reforms was because they did not wanna to be too dependent on China. They wanted to make sure they could get you know, Western investment, investment from wealthier Asian countries as well, and just spread out their dependencies, right? Not be too dependent on China. So basically what then happened was, is that over the past 10 years, this reform process has been incredibly successful. You know, it's, the economy's done better. I mean, COVID is a disaster. Um, the, The genocidal violence against the Rohingya is obviously a disaster. Um, That's a much deeper story. That's not really about political transition. That's just about the eternal problems of, you know, a country that sees itself as, you know, one religion, one ethnicity trying to to rule over an incredibly diverse place. That's a much deeper story. Um, But the decade has been very successful politically, economically, socially. The country's never had a better decade, you know, than this past one. Okay. And so, Basically, so if when China looks, when the elections happen, China congratulated the NLD on winning. China has no stake in seeing Myanmar be a military regime. What China wants in Myanmar is stability. They don't want, you know, people getting turned out by, you know, civil war and conflict, obviously. They want to be able to do business there. They would like to see, you know, a continuation of a stable power-sharing arrangement between military and civilian officials. So China is not going to be happy about this coup at all. Um, and in fact, even though the the narrative and the rhetoric about, you know, democracy versus authoritarianism, of course, is, you know, pretty baked into the way, you know, the U.S. talks about the world, and especially, you know, Biden as compared to Trump. The fact of the matter is, is there's huge consensus on, I, I believe, there's huge consensus on, wanting to see Myanmar return to like the stable, you know, the stabilizing path they were on. This place was a basket case for 50 years, you know, endemic civil war, terrible economy, you know, almost entirely closed to foreign investment. In the past 10 years, they've they've escaped that. And this sort of hits the reset button and threatens to take Myanmar back. So it's certainly true that if the if the military decided we're going to go all in, we're just, you know, we're going to take over completely and we know China won't be as hard on us. Russia won't be as hard as if they've actually, they've gotten uh, closer relations to Russia in recent years too. You know, China and Russia will be less hard on us than say, you know, Japan, the United States, you know, South Korea. So I think there's, there's certainly differences, but this is not one of these cases where, you know, China is licking its chops and saying, now they're back in our camp and they're out of the American camp. I mean, I think everybody wants to see Myanmar continue to succeed like it has in the past decade. And this is why this coup, you know, lots of coups in the world, you can make the case like, well, things were pretty unstable, like the civilians were really making a mess of things. You know, the military, you know, we don't like military rule, but wow, you know, this might actually stabilize things for a little bit. That is not what this is. This is a deeply, deeply destabilizing move by the military and China's not happy about it. But Dan, that's a very subversive point precisely for what you just
0: said, which is I think a lot of people think of U.S. support for quote unquote stability is oftentimes being on the side of the military. Right. Right. You know, you think of Latin America, right, through the Cold War. And what you're saying is that it's not. It's actually on the side of mass mobilization, of, you know, democratization. Of course, it's not a perfect democracy today, but people are participating. And, yeah, that can be destabilizing in moments of, you know, potential election malfeasance or the, you know, just the um, administrative uh, difficulty of holding an election.
1: But that's a very different sort of world that we live in than during the Cold War. If that's true. That's right, and this is. I mean, there are tough calls in the world, and there are easy calls in the world. You know, there are tough calls. When you say, <laughs> I mean, seriously, like there there are tough calls where you can say, like, of course we want to see a place be more democratic, but man, oh man, is it falling apart. You know, and and you sort of say, well, wow, it's it, and you really could feel like this is a choice between civil war and authoritarian rule. And these are horrible dilemmas, right? And I'm glad I'm not in the State Department or you know, trying to make decisions or in the UN trying to make decisions on these things. This one is so easy, James. This one is so easy. This one is the only way this country becomes more stable is by becoming more democratic because the people at this point have had, they've had two free and fair elections. They have voted overwhelmingly for the NLD. There's no question about what they want. And think about the psychology of this, right? I mean, if you want to deny people the, the right to vote, like you don't let them vote and then take it away from them, right? I mean, this is basic psychology, right? It's all the worse in terms of people's resistance to it to say, let's hold the election. You see the results. It's the day they're taking power and you disrupt it, right? Yeah. So the level of, I mean, the levels at which this was just not strategically done and not almost, I would say, rationally done from the perspective of the military I think is striking. And that's one reason why I think there's a pretty good chance as we look down the road, we might look back on this and say, this wasn't unlike in the past, this wasn't a coup of a highly unified military Mm -hmm. as much as this was a coup basically done by men online, by the commander in chief, because he doesn't want to retire from politics and Uh that Ultimately, this is something that's more in his self-interest than in the military's institutional interest. So I think it's going to be interesting to see whether or not, I mean, how far is the military going to be willing to to follow him um, if these protests keep going, which they're going to, I mean, they're not just going to go away. So I don't, you know, what is his end game? you know, that's what we're gonna have to see in the next few days. And, and look, there's still people, you know, they've got people, you know, locked up who can't be contacted by anybody, you know, this is this is scary stuff, you know, and the the world should be calling attention to the fact that, you know, there are people detained. And the, the most urgent thing is those people should be released.
0: So a political leader who lost an election who doesn't want to retire, and is is saber rattling to stay
1: in power. There you go. It's culturally specific, man. It could only happen in. (laughs) This is something, you know, it's, it's an exotic, you know, unique place. You have to understand the culture. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm glad you drew the parallel because you know, the parallel is, is there, you know, it's very much there and, you know, it's, you know, people who have power sometimes. No, I don't mean to be
0: facile. I don't mean to be yeah. facile. I mean to be sort of a true comparativist in the sense that like not, a, you know, we, we deal with issues that everybody deals with and they deal with issues that we deal with. You know, this is just sort of what it means to try to govern
1: and yeah. live in the world. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, the thing is, is we tend to downplay these things as political scientists. But I think sometimes, you know, people with power are just big babies, you know, and they, they don't want to lose and they don't want to give things up. And they'll they'll do horrible things to a country to avoid giving things up, and the people around them convince them they're needed to save the country, and they do crazy, crazy things. You know, and they just do things that just are so damaging. Um, and you know, there there are definite parallels here. You know, you don't you know you don't want to overdraw it, but yeah, this. I mean, hopefully, Americans feel pretty humbled by what's happened in the last four years, and aren't going to look around the world and sort of say, "Geez, boy, they, they don't have their act together." You know, because uh, boy, it can happen here; it can happen anywhere.
0: Yeah. So, Dan, do you have any insights on this issue of election fraud? I mean, that's another parallel that's been drawn is that, you know, the NLD won kind of overwhelmingly in the election. You know, I'm sure there's there's always issues with running an election in a country like Myanmar um, Mm -hmm. uh, when it's an early democratizer. But, you know, there were allegations of fraud on the part of the military. Are, Are there any credible pieces of evidence to support that or is that all a
1: big lie as well? that is all a big lie as well. Um, so I, I had the, the privilege of, of getting to monitor the 2015 elections. Um, and yeah, these are, you know, this is a very, very poor country. There's not a lot of experience, but I was extremely impressed and, you know, I was, you know, staying in the same hotel with, you know, essentially all the observers and everybody was giving their reports from, you know, around the country, you know, it, you know, these are, you know, by international standards, these are free and fair elections, you know, and they were, again, they were monitored. And, you know, this is, it's not as if the election commission is just, you know, packed with a bunch of NLD hacks or anything like this, like this is, and again, the results were exactly the same, you know, there's no mystery here, right, about why you get this election result. It's just, it's absolutely as plain as as the nose on your face, right? That whatever, you know, if there were problems in administration or whatever, like, there's just, there's nothing that rise to the standard of, you know, of major fraud. The, the bigger issue here, and I think maybe for interest for your, for your listeners, given your focus on elections, the bigger question is the election, the, excuse me, the electoral system. The fact that in, in Myanmar, the military insisted on sticking with the old colonial system because they wanted to change as little as possible. And they stuck with first past the post. Which was completely insane. In single guess, member same, districts,
0: right? Parliamentary yeah, districts.
1: There you yeah. go. And for the same so the reason British system. Exactly. And so for the same reason as in Egypt, right? So not only so if you're scared that the you know the most The overwhelmingly popular civilian party is going to basically run away with everything. The last thing you want is first past the post elections, right? And so if you if what you want to do is set up a system where your not very popular party can gradually gain strength and have more seats and basically vote with you in parliament because the military's got 25% of the seats, you set up something proportional, right? So, you know, as we're having these debates in the United States about, you know, does democracy require more proportional election system, right? I think a big lesson here is, you know, and again, Egypt is another you know, example, A, you know, exhibit A, this is exhibit B, in transitional democracies, you've got to build in some kind of proportionality into the system to kind of encourage power sharing in some way, because when these, you know, when, when outside forces can win these elections and very quickly wipe out the old guard, it might make us feel good, um, but it can be very, very destabilizing. And so, one possibility here is that the what the military will do is say okay okay we, we need a mulligan you know to to quote our distinguished senator I mean, <laughs> we, we, we need a mulligan here right um and let's let's you know hit rewind we'll you know and we'll start the process again but do it a little more like thailand did you know maybe shift up the electoral rules a bit to make sure the nld doesn't win as much as they win maybe even ban the nld you know because in thailand they've been banning political parties you know and banning candidates left right and center and so it could be that they're like okay we didn't quite have all the wiring right so let's rewire this thing and go back to where we were um that's an you know i think an optimistic take um We'll see if that's what they end up doing, but that's certainly one possibility. So I think the the big, the really interesting thing here for like a podcast on elections is the way that electoral rules matter so hugely in these transitional settings.
0: Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's a great point. And and a lot of, at least the British, the former British colonies in Africa did the same thing, single member, simple plurality seats for parliament. And that just allowed people to sort of become... Not not only did I think it contributed early on to sort of the rise of the one-party state, but then once it democratizes, you have these people that are just very strong locally and kind of these factions or coalitions, and they're very hard to get out. Absolutely. And it's very, I mean, you can have a party that truly has 30% support across the country, but they don't have majority support in anyone one. Yep. Uh, congressional district, you know, the equivalent of a congressional district. So that 30% never gets representation in the parliament, even though it has, you know, in a proportional
1: setting, it would, you know, presumably get something like 30% of the seats. Exactly. And this is why you could say, well, they, you know, the, the military, they covered their, you know, they covered their, shall I say, bases. Um, they covered the bases. They took, they made sure 25% of parliament was appointed to them, you know, you, you take 75% to change the constitution. So the military has got veto power over, over any you know, fundamental changes to the system. So they don't really need the USDP to do well in elections. And so in 2015, you know, you know, again, I was there and everybody's like, whoa, you know, the USDP got crushed, the NLD won big, the military's not gonna accept this result, are they? And at the time I said, of course they're gonna accept the result. They, they set up the system so they knew the NLD was gonna win big. They, they probably did a little worse than they thought they were gonna do. Um, But, you know, they've built in safeguards for this. And again, this is their process. Like, the military has been bragging for, you know, 25 years, we are going to get the country on the track to a a disciplined track to democracy. In 2015, it looked like they pulled it off, you know. So the puzzle in a way is why, why would it bother them so much in 2020 for the USDP to do exactly as badly as it did in 2015? Why are they more upset five years later than they were five years ago? And it's not as if the NLD has spent the last five years you know, attacking the military. I mean, everybody knows about what Aung San Suu Kyi did about the Rohingya, right? She goes to the Hague, like she goes to the Hague to defend the military, right? I mean, she is bent over backwards you know, to make sure the military doesn't, doesn't oust her. And if you didn't understand why before, you better understand now, I mean, it didn't take much of a trigger for them to say, no, we're just going to throw you out and lock you up again. So she's been walking on eggshells to say the least. And I mean, I don't know. It's just kind of, it's just kind of crazy to think that there's something happened in 2020 that makes them, you know, kind of blow the system up. Whereas in 2015 they were able to accept the result with a lot of magnanimity. They looked pretty good. Again, this is their reforms. This is their system. It's stabilized the country. We just had a very successful decade. And then you do this.
0: Well, then, Dan, could the, I don't want to say stabilizing force, maybe that's too generous, but could the stabilizing force then of a pacted transition back to democracy actually come from within the military itself? If they feel like this guy at the top is just kind of being a big baby and they they kind of want to get back to the status quo where they were in 2020, would they work with the NLD to make sure that happens? Or would they sort of have an internal fight within the military to make sure it happens?
1: I mean, it's really hard to know. I mean, the thing about the you know the fundamental fact about the the military in Burma and then in Myanmar is just how cohesive they've always been and how they've always been able to keep any of their dirty laundry you know out of public sight. And so you just have to wonder: is that you know is that going to hold this time or not? I think it's you know one scenario. I mean, it's 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 interesting you you mentioned pacted transition because you know 2011 was not a pacted transition really. It was basically preemptive. It was unilateral. It was you know this is what the military said, "Here will be the system, <laughs> and this is what will happen." Uh, and the and then it, it, it gave enough to the NLD that they didn't boycott it because they had been boycotting earlier elections that were way more you know skewed. Um, and so, one possibility is that the, what this will lead to is something more like a pacted transition. That as the military tries to figure out how to unwind this and get back into power sharing mode, um, that there will be some kind of negotiations that will maybe give something more lasting. But again, I mean, it was, it really, it was an equilibrium in the sense that the military imposed this system and the NLD accepted it. Now they were certainly pushing to improve it. Like they, you know, they raised, you know, the prospect of trying to reduce military seats in parliament which is what happened in Indonesia as well, right? Again, the idea you get the safeguard first, but, you know, it shouldn't be permanent. So clearly there are, there are questions of power. I mean, power sharing is not a walk in the park, right? There are gonna be these, these disagreements. And apparently there were negotiations going on between NLD leaders and the military up until the moment of the coup. So it's certainly possible that we've already kind of, spent, that we already started this process of, you know, kind of negotiating what the, how the system might change um, a little bit. And so, you know, again, what I hope and you know what i hoped when the coup first happened and i haven't lost all hope this is true is that we'll look back on the coup as well it was a show of force basically for negotiating purposes so the military says okay like you don't want to give the usdp four cabinet seats watch what we can do and so they do a coup and then you know in a couple of months hey guess what you're going to have the usdp four cabinet seats i mean that would be you know obviously a pretty pretty happy outcome given how bad things could get um, but if we think of this as a kind of like, you know, the military using this as a bargaining chip, that it can always say, we can always just pull the plug on the process, you know, so you're going to give us more. Um, I hope this is sort of, you know, only a power play that's about savvy negotiating and not just something where, you know it kind of an act of lunacy where you're so separated from society and you have no support in society. And you're almost like, I mean, the military in Burma has always been like almost like an occupying force, that they just don't get it. And they think as long as we're following the constitution, you know, things will be stable, but the constitution doesn't stabilize anything. The only thing that stabilizes things in, in Burma in Myanmar is that the civilians get to share power. And so there's legitimacy to the system only in so far as the people and the parties, that, the party that wins this landslide actually gets to you know play a role in representing the people.
0: So what is the uh, relationship right now between the NLD and Aung San Suu Kyi and NLD leadership and the military? I mean, she was in house arrest for all those years. Then she becomes a democratically elected leader, effectively the head of government. Um, you know, now there's been a coup against her. I assume she's under house arrest. Are they and like you said, you know, allegations recently that she had kind of gone over to the other side by supporting what the military was doing with the Rohingya? Mm-hmm. Um, are they are these elites kind of bargaining and they're all sort of on the same page or, or do they hate each other as much as I was led to believe? Where are they at in terms of their uh, negotiations?
1: Uh, the military really hates Aung San Suu Kyi, That that I think is pretty clear and they and they always have. Um, and I think it's particularly bad between uh, the current leader and Aung San Su Kyi. So I think part of this is about those two you know, personalities in a way. And they're both proud, they both have a lot of power. Um, and so having those two, you know, both in the positions they're in is not necessarily gonna, you know, go, go so smoothly. Um you know, I mean, we'll see what they're doing. I think the main thing I suspect they're trying to do—not just by locking her up, but by locking up her—the um, the rest of the civilian government. They've um, they've arrested a good friend of mine, who's her closest economic advisor, um, an Australian professor named Sean Turnell. So he's still, you know, he's still, you know, under arrest. Um, and I can only imagine that they're—I mean, I think I would think of it not as negotiating, but as basically as interrogating um you know and you know, negotiating under circumstances where you're under arrest and can't see a lawyer that's not negotiating right um and i and i suspect what they're trying to do is dig up as much you know dirt or anything they can use to justify banning the nld um, and banning Aung San Suu Kyi from politics permanently. And they already make, she can't lead the country because they wrote the constitution to exclude her, right? Because she has foreign born children. So they wrote the constitution in a way to make sure she can never formally be, you know, the country's leader um, but just informally. Um, so I think this is still, you know, again, negotiation is way too soft of a word for it but there, the military, you know, is as an institution is trying to see what they can get. See if they get an even better deal than they already had which is an extraordinarily good deal. Um, and then we'll see, but it's, uh, this is part of the problem is, you know, I mean, Aung San Su Kyi is kind of the Gordian knot here, right? That you could say, you could say things like, well, we'll wind things back a little bit and we'll have a few more safeguards and we'll, you know, we'll ensure that, you know, the cabinet or certain ministries or like these kinds of, you know, soft kinds of politics. But at the end of the day, it's like, she's the leader. She's the people's leader. She's not just like one of many people who could be the leader. And the military really self defeats itself in the sense that, you know, so long as they have this huge share of formal power, it ensures that basically civilians are all going to go for Aung San Suu Kyi because she's the only person who can stand up to them, you know. And so politics is all about electoral politics is all about do we want to keep getting the military out of politics and bringing civilians in? You know, if the military would just back off and, and actually invest its authority in the USDP you know, then the USDP could run against the NLD and say things like, well, you didn't govern very well, you made these mistakes, you made these mistakes. Right. And this is how old authoritarian parties came back all across Asia. You know, they basically they changed they switch the cleavage of politics, they switch it from it being all about military versus civilian to being about, you know, competent versus incompetent. And Right, this, what have you this, done for me lately and if yeah, NLD doesn't it, do a, well
0: you vote for the opposition
1: and goes back and forth exactly and the thing is is that like what have you done for me lately as long as the military doesn't get out of the way what Aung San Suu Kyi has done for the Burmese people lately is she has been their champion she's been the the person who has you know done the most to get the country out of essentially you know military occupation you know so her iconic status within Myanmar even though she's lost her human rights icon st- status outside of Myanmar but within, within Myanmar, she still has this status. And I don't know, you know, I don't see what a solution is that's gonna actually be stabilizing that just excludes her entirely. It's the military might be hoping they can pull it off. They find something that discredits her or something like that, but it just seems like such a, a hail Mary to think they could do that. You know, it's, it's a real problem in terms of, you know anything other than, I mean, it's hard to imagine any stable power sharing arrangement that could be very different from the one they've already had for the past 10 years.
0: Dan, so if she's under house arrest and sort of under interrogation, she's not able to quote unquote negotiate in any kind of meaningful sense. Um, The supporters of the NLD are are helping to negotiate presumably by taking to the streets. I mean, the NLD is actually popular, right? They just won an election overwhelmingly. Now we're seeing uh, mass action in favor of or against the military in favor of returning to civilian rule. How will that play into the Otherwise, her inability to negotiate by simply flexing muscle on the street among her supporters.
1: Yeah, the protests are just enormously important, you know, and, uh, you know, we see this in a lot of parts of the world where you have, you know, uh, if, if protests reach a certain point, it, it encourages splits within the within a military regime and some people say, you know, we should really we have to use, you know full force to, to, you know, clear the streets and others say that's not gonna be a solution. And I don't want, you know, to go down in history as the person who did that and and whatever. And, you know, the the police even, I think there have been some signs there might be a little bit more, um, you know, unhappiness within the police, um, that they've been a little, at times at least, uh, been a little lighter on the protesters. Um, you know, let them march through in ways we thought they wouldn't. So, um, yeah, the question is: Will basically the protest be such that, and particularly these strikes, you know, so things like you know hospitals and the civil service, like if the state just goes on strike, you know, and the, basically the, the 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 civil service refuses to work unless the NLD is returned to power sharing arrangement it really causes you know very big problem for the military obviously the military doesn't want to you know they don't want to do the 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 daily dirty work of, of governance right that's not what militaries are there for they want to they want to fight insurgents and they want to run businesses and they want to you know be able to you know, you know, they want to be able to stand tall and say you can't you can't mess with our prerogatives right I mean, they don't want to be running the healthcare system they don't want to be you know running social services like they they didn't do it for 50 years when they were in power they, they're not going to do it now um so hopefully you know this pressure on them is sending the signal they're like no no no, no. this is we can't go back to the to the status quo ante like the, the earlier status quo ante you know things were on a, on a good track this is a negotiable, whatever problems you have with NLD over the elections or power sharing, these are very, very negotiable. Um, and so let's back get back to figuring out some kind of arrangement. So yeah, the, the, the military coup is certainly a show of force, but society has its own show of force, and that's getting out in the streets and not going away.
0: Mm-hmm. And so is the military still saying that they will have a year of this occupation, and then they plan to transition after a year? Is that credible? Is that
1: a, a likely timeline at this point? Um, I wouldn't put too much stock in that. I think that basically the reason they said a year is it's because it's what the constitution allows. And one, one way the military stays cohesive is they, they're all very invested in this constitution that they put together. And so that's what the constitution allows. Um, There's no there's nothing magical about one year. I mean, if they're able to, you know, come to some kind of agreement arrangement with the NLD, either in the form of banning them or the form of, you know, the NLD accepts certain restrictions and they're allowed to run again, it could happen sooner. It could also go on forever. I mean, they, you know, they did a coup in 1962. They basically held power for 50 years. You know, 1990, they said, well, we'll have this free and fair election. Guess what happened? The NLD won in a landslide. And they said, no we're not going to accept the results. Then they took 18 years to write a constitution and 25 years to hold free and fair elections. So if we think that countries tend to act like countries act, you know, if we focus on, you know, Burma's own history, then we have to be very concerned that they could say, no, we're going to just hold on, you know, try to hold on in perpetuity, right? Um, For a very, very long time. Um, But, you know, it's certainly the cost of doing so are just enormous um, in terms of stability, in terms of economic growth. I think the vested interests in, the way that Myanmar has improved in the past 10 years have got to be so strong that it's, again, it's a very, very big, big haul, very, very big push to try to go back to the way things were before 2010.
0: So Dan, I wanted to
1: end by having you kind of talk
0: about what you think the lessons are regionally and globally for that Myanmar provides to the world in thinking about democracy in the 21st century.
1: That's a good small question. Thank you for that. Bring it all together. Just bring it all home. Um, well, I, I guess I would reinforce that what one point I made earlier about about election systems. You know, and this is you know, I'm certainly not someone who believes that you know you know institutions, kind of written institutions, make all the difference. But it is one pretty you know, I think straightforward lesson is that um, you know, trying to avoid these kind of you know you know first past the post, you know, winner take all you know systems. As we live in an age of increasing polarization, is a big lesson in the United States too. Um, you know, finding ways that elections don't, you know, create, you know, kind of Chernobyl, like you know, nuclear meltdown and overheating, right? Um, is I think a big part of the, big part of the story, you know, and, and with, with you guys focusing on elections, I would maybe stress, stress that point. Um, you know, it's also, it's, I think there's a lot of interesting questions about, you know, the, about the difference between these organizations like parties and militaries and their leaders. You know, sometimes the leaders of organizations can just take them in terrible directions and the you would think the organization could get rid of them or that they wouldn't be pulled in these in these self-defeating ways. Um, You think about the Republican Party, right? You think about Trump. It's kind of remarkable, you know, the grip that that individuals can get over organizations. And when those individuals become polarized, you know, it becomes very, very difficult for the, the country to function. And so thinking about ways to maybe, you know, especially in the age of mass media, you know, I mean, it's so easy to see everything in personalistic terms, you know, politicians or celebrities, just trying to find some way to, you know, de-emphasize the, the personalities and the, the the charismatic folks who both inspire mass adoration, but also mass hatred, you know, these kind of figures in politics, trying to think about ways to. To lessen their impact, lessen their influence. It's I think a big, it's a big question for all of us. But it it seems like when we think about how we're gonna navigate a world as polarized as ours and where, you know, different people just inhabit different, you know, media ecosystems, get just totally different information and there's so much demonization of the other side. Um it's a really, really big question of how we lower the temperature, I think. And that's something that's, you know, in Myanmar, nothing happened really that should raise the temperature like this. In the United States, arguably nothing has happened that should raise the temperature this much. Um, And yet here we are. So without going all the way to say things like, oh, well, we need consociationalism, you know, we need these, you know, these things that take all, put all power in the hands of elites or something um, to try to calm things down. I mean, things have got to try to be calmed down somehow. Yeah, and Dan, I
0: think one of the, let me float one thing that the, the comparison seems really potent to me is that just seeing these, these pictures of, of protests, particularly of young people coming yeah. from Myanmar, you know, one of the things I've tried to stress on this podcast and with my students over the last year is democracy is just an enormous amount of work for everybody involved. And, you know, to run an election, to get it right, to make sure the ballots are counted and certified and all the rest of it. It actually is a lot of work. It's just that Americans have been able to be a little bit sleepy about the work it requires for a while. And then, you know, that's not their fault. It's just that the system has more or less been, you know, <clears throat> operating the, of, the, the way it was meant to operate. But I think this year, particularly for young people in the U.S., this was like really the first election where they looked at how much work it requires to uphold democracy. And I just imagine that people in Myanmar they've gotta be exhausted by how much work it requires. And yet they still work hard to make it try to work. I mean, I can't think of a country where people have fought harder and done more to try to support it and still have to do it.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. Well, there's another, and I think maybe again, more of a hopeful lesson here, right? Is that if you look at these protests there, it can be the work of democracy it can also be joyful work, you know, and if you look at the humor and you look at the, the you know, kind of the festival like nature at times of, uh, of, of some of these protests, Um, you know, the, I mean, part of what, you know, if it were just, you know, if it were all just rational choice and it was, you know, taking part in politics is costly. And so why not free ride? I mean, if people can find some sort of joy in it, some kind of purpose, some sort of, um, collective, you know, purpose to their lives. And especially like with COVID and the amount of time we've all been, you know, quarantined and isolated, you know, if, you know, the work of democracy can be made, you know, can be made joyful. Um, you know, then maybe that'll give us more, you know, more spirit, more energy to to keep pushing for fighting for, you know, the, the right to self government, which is, you know, under threat everywhere, to be honest.
0: Well, I think that's a great place to end. Uh, Professor
1: Dan Slater from University of Michigan. Thanks a lot for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, James. And thanks for keeping the attention on Myanmar, too. It's really it's a it's a vital time to be paying attention. Thank you for listening
0: to the Neither Free No Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Vichduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, concerns, please contact udapoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.